for many, 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 many years. So, yeah, it is a little loud. Yeah, hey. Start singing. Sing. Okay, go ahead. Try again. Okay. Now I'm a little too quiet. I think a little louder. Okay. Better. Okay. Better. Alright. Good morning. Good morning. We all hate when there's a misunderstanding. Like the fellow who had just finished laying carpet at someone's house, and he was so glad to be done with the job. He finished early, and as he was leaving, he noticed there was a lump in the carpet. He thought, oh, I don't want to rip up the whole carpet. So he noticed the cigarettes were missing, so he thought, I must have just left them and they fell off my shirt. So he took his hammer and pounded it and smoothed it down until it was flat. And when he got in his truck, he noticed his cigarettes were on the dashboard, and then he heard the lady calling out, Have you seen my parakeet? Anyways, as Paul was writing this letter, he knew that there would be Jewish believers reading it, and he did not want them to misunderstand what he had been saying. To the Jewish person of the first century, the law of God was a priceless treasure. And yet the law of God had wrongly become what was thought to be the means of how you have salvation. We've seen Paul address this error in chapter 3, where he says, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So what was so concerning to the Jewish people hearing what Paul was saying is that they believed that the law is what would produce holy living in a person. So if there's no law that you're under, um, then people will live a lawless life. So in chapter 7, Paul's going to clarify what he meant by saying that believers are not under the law any longer by answering that charge that it is the law that refrains people from sin. So the word law is used here 23 times in this chapter. Uh, and obviously that's the theme of the believer's relationship with the law. So you may think this really isn't that relevant to you because you're really not hung up about the law. But I, it's critical to understand because if you do not understand these truths, you will, uh, you could fall into error yourself in regards to legalism. This is a belief that we can actually become holy if we obey certain things and laws and regulations. That will make you spiritual if you do the do's and you don't do the don'ts. Then there's the other extreme of the libertine that's like, you know what, I'm not under the law, I'm just living my life how I see fit. And uh, that's obviously not the intent here at all. So as we approach this rather challenging chapter, Paul's going to ex explain the proper relationship a believer has with God's law. So let's look at the relationship of a believer to the law. <laughs> Okay, the law only impacts the living. Well, that's rather obvious, isn't it? Whether it's the law of Moses, the law of the Romans, or the law of the United States, it only has jurisdiction over a person when they are alive. So if a murderer is sentenced to life in, a, uh, life in prison or in the electric chair, and then they die before going, uh, experiencing their sentence, it really doesn't matter, because the law uh, can only have authority over people who are alive. So this is a principle. It's easy enough to understand that concept. Now he's going to give an illustration. On uh, verses 2 and 3, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. 
So God's law says when a man and woman marry, they are united for life. They are bound to one another by the law. But if he dies, verse 2 makes it clear, she's free from her relationship with her husband. The death of a spouse releases the living person from that marriage. So death means she is free to remarry. In verse 3, Paul says, So then, if while her husband is living and she's joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So if a married woman says, I'm done with you, and moves on to marry someone else, she is a lawbreaker. The point of the passage is not to give teaching on marriage and remarriage and divorce. That's not even the point. It's, he's just using this as an illustration. For that, you have to look at Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7. So that's not what this is about. He's trying to use this illustration and use marriage to illustrate the point that a wife is legally bound to her husband as long as he lives. But when his, her husband dies, she's free to remarry. His point is to make clear that death breaks the marriage bind, uh, relationship, and the wife is free to remarry. Having given this illustration, now he wants to show us the principle here. <clears throat> In verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. In other words, just as death ends a marriage, so, so death has ended our relationship with the law. We have seen the truth that when we come to Christ and trust him to be our savior from our sin, at that very moment when we call on him to save us, unbeknownst to us, we died. It's something that has already taken place. It happened at salvation. We were made to die, or it could be translated, we were put to death. This is what we saw in chapter 6, verse 3. So just as a woman is freed from the law by the death of her husband, so believers are free from the law by our death in Christ. That's why Galatians 2, Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You know what? The law demands a penalty. We saw that the last verse of chapter 6 says, for the wages of sin is death. That is the wage. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins. And we died with him, as one commentator put it, by the divine act of God in response to faith in his son. So Christ died, therefore the law cannot touch him, it cannot touch us. We died to the law, and the law only has authority over living people. The penalty for breaking God's law is death. But our crimes of law-breaking have been paid for if we know Christ. If a criminal was put to death uh, for his crimes and miraculously came back from the dead, they couldn't punish him again for this crime. He's already been punished. He'd be a free man. And this is how it is for the believer in Christ. The law of God can never condemn a believer again. The penalty for breaking the law has been paid it has no more demands that it can make on us. We used to be married to the law, just as a wife is under the authority of her husband. So we were under the authority of the law. We were bound to it, but not anymore. We died, so we are free to be married to someone else. And that's what verse 4 says. So that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So just as a physical marriage 
produces the fruit of children. So in the spiritual realm, the union of a believer with Christ produces spiritual fruit. It's called holiness. When there is genuine salvation and a union with Christ, there will be fruit. It has to be. Fruit that glorifies God. John 15, Galatians 5.22, and so on. Now the explanation of the illustration is in verses 5 and 6. Paul describes what we were like before we were saved. We were in the flesh. That is that unredeemed human condition that all of us are born into. And while in that state, we were dominated by our flesh with all of its sinful passions. And the law was at work, and our body could only produce fruit for death. In our rebellious sinful nature, when we are told not to do something, that's the very thing we want to do. Our sinful passions are then intensified by the law because now we really want to do what it says to do, what it says not to do. And the result is fruit, as I said, that leads to death. That is how we used to be under the domination of the law. But now that we are married to Christ, we're delivered from the condemnation that comes from not obeying the law, and we're no longer under its reign. Of course, those who would object to what Paul is saying would think, now people are going to live however they want and be godless. But it's quite the opposite. Those no longer under the law have a desire to serve and obey the Lord because they have a changed heart, and now they have proper motives. A believer obeys God's word in newness of the spirit who is working within us so that we desire to serve the Lord, we want to obey him and his word. It's no longer about an outward performance or ritual or following a religious code outwardly so that we look very religious to other people. A believer has a new nature and now obeys the Lord and his word out of love for him. So we've been set free from trying to earn salvation by keeping an outward religious code and now keep the moral law of God because we love him and we are so thankful for his saving us. So we have a changed heart, and our motives have changed. So the purpose of the law, the law reveals our sin, Paul says. I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, coveting is one of those things that's not that obvious to see. I mean, people can hide that quite well in their hearts. The law doesn't create sin. It just shows us the sin that is already in our hearts. We learned in the first chapter of this book that you don't even have to have a knowledge of the law of Moses because God put a law in our hearts, in our conscience, and we've been breaking that since the moment we could think and, and live independently. So Paul is trying to help us understand the true character of sin. So many people think, if I could just do this checklist of the things I do, and the things I don't do, I'm okay. That's what Paul thought. He was a devout religious leader of his day, a Pharisee. So he fulfilled all the requirements that were expected. But the law revealed to him something that he didn't realize, a truth about sin. The command to not covet is a focus of his heart. It's an inward attitude. It's wanting something, craving something that is not yours. This law revealed to Paul that his internal desires and his internal thoughts were sin. Even though he was doing all the bright things on the outside, 
He wouldn't have known how sinful this was without the law telling him it was sin to covet. This is the biggest obstacle for the people, like Paul, who are very religious. They fail to see the true nature and depravity of sin. They see themselves as good in behavior. They haven't murdered, robbed banks. They're part of a church. They do all the things you're supposed to do. They don't do the things you're not supposed to do. That's how Paul saw himself before his conversion. He thought he was blameless because of his outward behavior. But the law revealed the true nature of his sin, and it convicted him that he was a sinner before a holy God. The law is not sinful. Anything that reveals a person's sin is really lifting up God's holiness. The law shows us our sin. Another thing the law does is it arouses sin within us. Not only does the law show us our sin, but when we realize the true nature of sin, we sin more instead of less. The truth is, we're all rebellious. We're born that way. And that rebellion rises up to oppose the law that forbids us to do any particular sin. You can only go 55. Well, that's a stupid law. I don't want to go 55. I need more time to get where I'm going. You know, you can tell a child, whatever it is, don't touch that, don't do that. That's the exact thing then that they want to do. In reality, the law teaches us the depth of our sinfulness and depravity. And with what results? Verses 8 through 13. In this section, we see the law kills us. Paul tells us he wasn't aware of the sin in him until the law got a grip on his heart. Sin is never dead in us. It's, it's alive, but sometimes it's not as active. And the law of God, when it takes hold of you, there's a light that comes and shines in on your heart, and you see how depraved, how vile, how wicked you really are. And it does something inside of you. It spiritually slays you. He is speaking of the fact that he was alive before he understood the law in the sense that he thought everything was fine with him and God. He was satisfied. He was confident that he was good. He was proud of his achievements, being a devout Jewish Pharisee. But then something happened. In verse 9 he says, But when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. He's not speaking of physical death. He knows he was born spiritually dead already, but he saw himself condemned and guilty before holy God. Suddenly, he saw how he was weak, he was help hopeless. The law slays us. The word of God penetrates our hearts. It brings us to a place where we finally see ourselves the lost, guilty sinners we really are, unable to please God no matter how hard we try. It is in this excruciating moment of understanding where we are crushed and broken before God. All of our self-confidence is destroyed. That's how we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They're broken. They know how wretched they really are. The law destroys all that self-confidence when we understand uh, how we have broken the holy commands of God. Our only hope is Christ. He alone kept the law perfectly, and then he died to pay for our penalty for breaking the law. The laws of Almighty God. In verse 10, the law of God was given to help Paul live a life of holiness. He says, thou, thou shalt not covet is a good law. If you obey it, you know what? You avoid a lot of heartache and discontentment in your life. But Paul discovered he couldn't keep it. 
So he was in misery. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, came, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Paul was deceived into thinking that he could actually keep the law and be happy. But sin leads you to think you can get into heaven by being good enough, by doing the outward commandments, so the Ten Commandments. People don't even know that they are, let alone obey them. But that's the illusion. It's a lie. The law shows us our sin. It arouses sinful desires, and it kills us when we realize how wicked we are. So can the law be bad? Verse 12, so then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. I think we would agree that the command to not murder is a good law. It's a right law. We're glad it's a command from Scripture. We're glad that our country made it a law as well, that you're not to murder. So that's how it is with all God's laws. It is breaking the command that is evil. I remind you of the words of the psalmist referring to the word of God. The law of the Lord is perfect. It restores the soul. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. More desirable than gold, sweeter than honey. By them thy servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. That is what the word of God is. This is the truth about his law. Paul then summarizes what he has been saying in verse 13. What was the cause of death for Paul? It was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment of sin, or commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So it's not the law that killed him, but his sin, and now his awareness of his sin. Sin can even take something that's holy and good uh, and bring about death. What about our condemnation? What brings about, rather, our condemnation is our sin, not the law. The law is not to blame for our condemnation, that we are deserving to die for our sins. A murderer can be angry with the law that says you can't murder and be ticked that they're in prison and be mad about the law. What kind of a law is this? If they would have known the person I killed, they'd understand. No, it's, it's the law. You broke the law. It's his responsibility. You can't blame the law for making him be a murderer. God gave his law to lead us to Christ, to show us our sin. It stirs up that rebellious heart that we all have, and then it kills us when we realize how wicked we are. The question really for each of us today is, has the reality of your sinful state, your thoughts, your words, your deeds, your, in the inner recesses of your mind, you realize how wicked you are? Has it ever slain you? Have you seen the seriousness of your sin before a holy, perfect God? Don't compare yourself with wicked people in this world. Rather, look at how truly holy God is and how far you short, how, how you fall so far short of God's standards, of ever being able to be right with him on your own efforts. That is not reality. You must put your faith in Christ alone and his work on the cross. Otherwise, you will be another victim of the deceitfulness of sin and its lies like you're good enough and you go to the right church, etc. So that brings us to the believer's battle with sin. I don't have time to go through all the arguments about was Paul an unbeliever, was he an immature believer, was he a spiritual believer, 
Paul says that nothing good dwells in me. Well, a non-believer doesn't even know that. They think they're doing pretty good. Only a believer understands that. We have just seen that Paul has died when he saw how sinful he was. But now he speaks of the struggle with sin. But you know what? He's fighting back. He's fighting back. When a person has a clear view of God's holy law and their own sin, they're broken. And if you feel this way, it's only because you are growing spiritually. You would never see yourself as having arrived spiritually. The greater you have a sense of your sin, the more you see yourself as falling far short of being like Christ. The more you see of Christ and understand how holy he is, the more you see your sin and how wicked you are. In other words, the closer you grow to Jesus, the more you see how much further you have to go to be like him. As believers, the law no longer condemns us, but the law still continues to do a good thing in our lives because it keeps showing us our sin. The point of Paul sharing his struggle here with sin is to lift up the law of God as something good and spiritual and wonderful. It gives us sensitivity to our sin. It causes us to long to live up to God's holy standards. We should be encouraged to see this godly man want to do what's right and struggle with sin. Because I know I can relate to everything he says, and I'm sure many of you can as well. So he says, the conflict with sin. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Again, the problem is not uh, the law, it's our sin. The law is from God, it's divine in origin, it reflects the one who gave it. We who are a flesh are unspiritual. The flesh is that part of us that has not yet been redeemed. It is our humanness that keeps us earthbound. Paul doesn't say that he's in the flesh or dominated by the flesh. He talks about being filled with the Spirit or dominated by the Holy Spirit. He just says that God's law is spiritual and heavenly, and he is imperfect and sinful in this earthly body. As blood-bought, forgiven believers in Christ, we still have the capacity to sin, because we still live in this body, and sin uses us to express itself. We know from our study in chapter 6 that we have a new nature, and therefore we are no longer compelled to sin as followers of Christ. We are set free now to obey his word. Here in Romans 7, Paul is looking at himself not as one who purposely chooses sin, but one who is in bondage and in a cont continual struggle with sin. Paul is speaking of a bondage of still being a sinner, even though we long to not sin. It's a bondage where there is a war raging on to not want to sin. As long as we are in this body, we are at war with a sin principle that wants to operate through our mouth, our attitudes, our words. As long as we live in this human flesh, we're going to struggle with sin. In verse 15, he states what every believer has experienced for what I am doing. Understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Paul's not saying he never obeys God's laws. He's not saying he never does anything right for the Lord. Rather, he's lamenting the fact that he can't do everything right. His struggle is that he doesn't obey all of the law all of the time, even though he really wants to. It's not that he doesn't understand 
uh, as he mentioned in that verse, because he's ignorant of why he struggles with sin. Rather, he means that he does not approve of it. He doesn't love it. He hates it. Every true believer knows this by experience. You know the, story, you know the scene. You get up early. Meaningful, quiet time. The Lord deals in your heart about issues. You've had meaningful time of prayer. You've given the day to him. You pray for all your family. And the first person you meet, within moments of leaving your quiet time, says or does something, you're annoyed, you yell, you say words that aren't kind. I mean, you just had this sweet fellowship, good, evil. I mean, just like that. It's right there. Or you just had this great enlightenment in Bible study, and you're making great progress. You, oh, I really understand it. i got to apply this to my heart. And then you get in the car, and you hate somebody you don't even know who just pulled out and almost hit you. You have bad words come to your mind, and you're like, wow. I, I, you know, I'm in the word. It's that quick. It's that instant. This evil is just there. Amazing. Huh. The more godly you are, you know what? The more broken you are over your sin when you do that. The person inclined to have to tell you that they are really growing in a spiritual way, they reveal the very opposite. People who are spiritual understand how unspiritual they really are. You know how wicked you are. You know what's in your thoughts so that would even cease. And as you grow in your understanding of God's truth, you see that you, you, uh, that you never... You see things you never even knew were sin before. We're reading about the great apostle Paul here. Most of us would think he's the most spiritual man who's ever lived. Yet how Paul saw himself was a wretched character, the chief of sinners. Is that how you see yourself? Or are you self-deceived? If not, it's because you have a lack of understanding of how holy God is. If you hate your sin, then you are agreeing with God's law that his law is good and his word is perfect. Before you come to Christ and trust him to save you, you are totally dominated by sin. There's no other choice. It's just what you're going to do. But as a believer confined to this earthbound body, there will always be a struggle over sin. This actually indicates the reality that you are a believer. We will never be fully delivered from this Romans 7 experience until Christ takes us home to heaven. Paul sums up his situation Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he will set me free from this body of death. There is victory over sin. We are not defeated by sin. We don't have to live in a defeated state, but we will continue to struggle and fight it and have to kill it continually, continually, filling our mind with truth, transforming how we think. Verse 17 gives the key. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Paul's not refusing to take responsibility for his sin. He's not a first century Flip Wilson declaring the devil made me do this. What could I do? He's not saying my old nature sins and I just can't do anything to keep it from stopping to do that. And God just doesn't hold me responsible. In verse 14, Paul says, I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Paul could, never, Paul could not be all that he wanted to be because there was sin in his life. Now he gets more specific when he says, It's not my new nature, the new man that is sinning, but rather it is sin that continues to live in me. This believer is in turmoil because he loves the Lord and he wants to please him all of the time. Paul says, So now no longer am I the one sinning, but it's because of Christ that he even has the ability to say, no longer. He's not controlled by sin. Christ has changed him. 
The unbeliever can't say that. They're in a battle with sin. They don't even know they're in a battle. They just don't like the consequences. Here's the truth that we have to grasp. If you are a true believer in Jesus, and you've called on him as the one who's paid for your sin and trusted him, then you know that you are not all that God wants you to be, but you are not what you used to be. The old you with the sin nature from Adam did whatever they wanted to do. But since coming to faith in Christ, even though you struggle with sin, the real you, that inner man, truly longs to please and obey the Lord and obey his word. Paul clarifies for us in verse 18 that the battle with sin lies in the flesh. That is our body, our minds, that's our thoughts, our feelings, and all those things that exist in this fallen body that we're living in. You know what? This body, this is the only part that won't go to heaven. According to First Corinthians 15, 50, there has to be a change before we go to heaven. This mortal must put on from our immortality. Amen. That's the way it has to be. But now we're in this flesh, and it's a fight. I'm just rereading, uh, this is a biography of um, Ann Judson, her husband, Adoniram Judson. They were first missionaries to go out in the very early 1800s to Burma. And she was writing her sister after years of much struggle, death, and trials, and writing her sister back in America. We have so much of her life because she wrote long letters and they were all preserved, so most of the book is her writing. But she was writing her sister an answer to, would you have gone if you had known how hard it was when you got there and all that you faced? And she said, I would have uh, approached it with much differently. If I had grown in any in grace since I have left America, it has consisted entirely in an increasing knowledge of my unspeakably wicked heart. Uh, that's the place where she was because of the work God was doing in her heart. So, here's the truth we have to grasp. As I said, we're not what we used to be. But we struggle with the battle with our flesh and this body. And I'm so glad it's not going to go to heaven but will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye or at the moment when we pass on from this life. Paul is sad that he doesn't always do the good he desires to do. He repeats his, inner con his conflict again, and then he says, I find that the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Literally, in the Greek, it reads, evil lies close at hand. When you want to do the will of God, evil is always right there to check your motives. You bring somebody a meal, you do a kind something for someone, and then you think, I wonder if they'll tell anybody how nice I'm saying. <laughs> 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 you know I'm saying? I mean, evil is, boom, it's there. It's, it's unbelievable. And we all know this from our own experience. And this is the struggle Paul was talking about. So in verses 22 and 23, the proof of this conflict is that Paul says, I wish to do good, and I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. God's word is a delight to the believer. The conflict is because of our humanness in this flesh, and we live in this flesh. That new nature longs to obey the law of God, but there is another law working in our flesh, and these two are at war. Sometimes the law of sin wins. Paul says, uh, speaks of the law of his mind, meaning this, the new man, that redeemed inner man, that new divine nature that causes believers to desire and to obey the law of God. But the law of sin is that principle to do evil, and there is a war that goes on. 
There is no 100% obedience 100% of the time. That's what Paul wanted. That's, that was his frustration here. Why can't I do it always right? The perfect motives and honor you all the time. So he's pointing out that the law reveals our sin. It never makes us holy. It can never deliver us from the tyranny of sin. It shows us that we need to be delivered and that sin doesn't uh, is the battle that we will continue to fight in this life. He cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? He wants deliverance. He's weary of the battle, tired of the fight. He wants to be rescued from this body of death, that, that unredeemed part of us, that old part that has not yet been made new by Christ. Paul speaks to himself like one bound to a corpse. And the answer, he says then, is thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we die, or when he returns, then we'll have a new glorified body. The battle will be over. One day we'll have a new body to go along with our new nature. But for now, the battle rages on. And as long as we have breath, we will continue the fight. Don't be discouraged, ladies. Don't stop fighting. Keep on fighting. Keep on putting to death the things that you know you have to deal with. Memorize the scripture that's relevant to your fight. Think about the scripture. Transform how you think. And kill those things. You don't put yourself in situations that you know you covet, so you put yourself in stories that make you covet more. You, you run and put to death those things of the flesh. The moment we are with Christ, the battle will be over. We'll have a new body with our new nature, and what a great day that will be. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you that you are so patient with us and understanding that you discipline us, you care for us like a loving father. I thank you for the word. I thank you for the honesty of your servant, Paul. And I thank you for the truth that the more we know you and see you, the more we really do grasp how wicked we are. I pray for each woman here, Lord, that they would not just give up the fight and say, well, I can't make any progress, so I just can't keep trying. Lord, help us to faithfully love your word, apply it each moment, repent when we blow it, and then get back on track to walking with you, controlled by your spirit and not our flesh. In your name, amen.